Welcome to Into the Verse, where we show new and unexpected insights about the Parsha, diving deep into the verses and cover the Torah's own commentary on itself. I am Beth Lesh, and I'm so excited to be joined here in the studio with Rabbi David Foreman. Hey, Beth, how are you? It's nice to see you. Really good to see you, too. Thanks for joining me, Rabbi Foreman. We are here to discuss Parshat Vayishlach. I want to clue you in and clue our listeners into what today's episode is going to be like. I call this a workshop. It is research in progress. I'm all ears. Tell me what you noticed. Let me start with the big picture of what I noticed. So Parshat Vayishlach tells the story of this epic dramatic reunion between between Yaakov and Esau, between two brothers. And if you just think about the story in broad strokes, the themes that are at play, I think you'll notice, as I did, that it is eerily reminiscent of another story that we're going to read just a little bit later in the Torah. And when I talk about the, the broad themes, what I have in mind is a moment of reunion between brothers who have been apart for a long time. And there's also a, we'll call it a surprise ending. There's a sort of tone change in the middle where the reunion starts out with a sense of fear, intimidation. There's one party that sees itself as vulnerable and one party that's seen to be the, the, you know, the one that is um, capable of, uh, of, of doing harm. And in the end, you get this sort of climax where actually it, it becomes a loving, intimate embrace that ends in a kind of fraternal harmony. What you're suggesting is this book of Genesis in very broad strokes has two stories of reunions and brothers, reunions where there's a lot of fear, uh, and then that fear gives way to a sense of reconciliation, tears, that sort of thing. And what you must be referring to is the reunion not just of Yaakov and Esav, but the reunion of Yosef and his brothers. And I guess what you want to suggest is, it, does the Torah want us to connect them in some kind of way or to compare and contrast them? So tell me what you see in the text that makes you think that that might be the case. Yeah, right. So if it, if it were just themes as uh, as we've laid out, that wouldn't be enough for me to think that there was a, a uh, an intentional you know comparison being staged here for us. But there are a number, a long list of phrases, words, some more unusual, some less unusual, that occur in both of these stories that make me think, huh, yeah, this is this is not just my imagination. This is something that the text is suggesting to us. The one that caught my eye first, Rabbi Foreman, is the language of Vayivater blank levado. And he was left alone, him all by himself. In the Yaakov story, we've got that. Mm-hmm. This is the prelude to Yaakov's struggle with the angel. He's left all alone. And then a man materializes out of nowhere. And they have the struggle until morning. Where do you see something that reminds you of that later on in the Joseph story? Yeah. So in the Joseph story, who is it that's left alone? In the later story of Joseph and his brothers, you're going to find that very same phrase in um, chapter 44, verse 20. And this is when it's the beginning of Vayigash. Yehuda is boldly stepping up to Yosef, who he doesn't yet know is Yosef, his long lost brother. And he's just recounting the whole drama of what has happened up until this point. And here's the way that he characterizes his family. He says, 
יש לנו אב זקן, we have a father who is old, וילד זקונים קטן, and he has a child, his youngest child who was born when he was older, ואחיו מת, his brother being יוסף, is presumed dead, ויוותר הוא לבדו, and he alone, בנימין, has been left alone, לאימו, to his mother. In other words, Binyamin is the only living, supposedly, child of, uh, of, of Rachel. Okay, that is pretty striking. So you've got Vayivatar Yaakov Levado, very remarkable, unusual phrase. Yaakov left all alone. Vayayavek Ishimo Adalot HaShachar, and a man struggled with him until the morning. Then you've got that same language now reappearing in Yehuda's sort of heroic speech to Yosef, where he's explaining that Benjamin has been left all alone, at least all alone, the only child left to his mother. So it's not like Benjamin is all alone physically in the way that Yaakov is all alone when this man shows up and struggles with him, but Benjamin is all alone in the sense that he's all that's left of Rachel. Yeah, so you're, so you're right to point out that even though the language is the same in both cases, it seems like we're describing different dynamics. So um, similarities and differences. And, and when I first found this, it sort of confused me and I didn't know what to do with it. And I thought, well, maybe I'm reading too much into it. That was until I started to see some more. The second more that I found, or the first more, is the word pleita. Pleita, an, an escapee, we might say. Someone who manages to survive when others don't survive. This word, pleita, very, very unusual word, occurs less than a handful of times in, uh, in the entire Humash. And the one time in the Yaakov story is in chapter 32, verse 9. Yaakov says to himself, If Esav comes to the one camp, the Hikahu, and he strikes it, then the, the camp that remains is going to be the escapee, is going to survive. What, what is he talking about? He was out of, out of desperation, in desperate fear that Esau was going to approach with the 400 men and slaughter his entire family. He says, you know what I'll do? I'm going to take my family, divide them into two camps. And that way, if Esau does come upon them and he does slaughter, does do harm to the first camp, at the very least, the second camp will be able to escape unscathed. Mm -hmm. That word, pleita, that very unusual word, we also find in Yosef's mouth, chapter 45, verse 7. This is after Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and there's this reconciliation between them. So in that moment when he first says, hi, I'm Yosef, and he's explaining uh, that they have nothing to fear. He's saying, God put me here to take care of you, and he's going to use that word, lipleta. God wanted to make sure that it would be a remnant of you, and you'd not be entirely wiped out by the famine. God sent me to be the agent to give you life, lipleta gadola, so that there can be a lot left of you. There can be an important remnant of you. You shouldn't all die in famine. But it wasn't you that sent me here. It was God. And for that reason, I've become the ruler 
over all of Egypt. Okay, so you've mm-hmm. got this word mm-hmm. lifleta. As by the way, worth noting that it's not just the word pleta; it's like the exact form of the word mm-hmm. lifleta and lifleta. And I hazard a guess, Beth, that these are the only two lifletas in the five books of Moses. These are the only two times in uh, in the Chumash, yes. And and so too with Vayivater. Vayivater, you know, it's an unusual root, but that formulation of it, those are the only two cases where it occurs in the Chumash. And then to be paired later with Levado is striking. So so too here with this word fleta, it's paired with language of um, nishar, to remain, right? Mm-hmm. Yaakov talks about the camp that remains, and Yosef says, I am a remnant, I am a she'arit somehow. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, Beth, I'm all yours. What else What else did you find? The next word that caught my eye is the word mincha. Okay, the word mincha, um, nowadays we use it to mean the afternoon davening. That's not the context here. It's also, it appears over and over again in the Torah to refer to a kind of sacrifice, a grain offering that's brought before God. That is also not the meaning as it appears in these two stories. It seems to refer to a gift, an offering, similar to an offering that might be brought before God, a gift from a vulnerable party to a powerful party that is meant to appease and meant to bring favor. Where do I see the word mincha appearing in each story? Well, in the Yaakov story, you have Yaakov's idea that he wants to send a mincha, a gift, to Esav in hopes of appeasing him. He says, He says, I'm going to give him a mincha, this gift that's going to go before me. And that is right before his fateful encounter with the angels. And as it happens, Yaakov also insists, the same Yaakov, insists on sending a mincha in the Joseph story. There's also, as you point out, Beth, a powerful person in the Joseph story. That person is this disguised, unnamed, high Egyptian official. And Yaakov uh, is intimidated of him because he's holding on to Shimon at this point. Right, And Yaakov feels the need to appease him. He says to the brothers, fine, if you're going to go back to him, go back to him. But make sure that you send a mincha to the person. Um, take these things with this, with this mincha and, and make sure to send it to him. And, and then we're going to have the mincha one more time when the brothers actually deliver the mincha. Yeah, first it's they take it. That's in uh, verse 15. Then in 25, it's and then they finally bring it to him in um, in 26. And they bow down to him. And while we're at it, I might just say that is going to be another connection, right? Because isn't it the case that it's not just the brothers who bow before Joseph when they give him the mincha, but after Yaakov gives Esav the mincha, when he finally goes to meet his brother, right, he also bows to the ground. Yes, uh, chapter 33, verse 3. There's actually a, a whole chain of bowing. Uh, Yaakov bows first, he does it seven times as he approaches his, his brother, Ad Gishto, Ad Achiv. And then all of the women and all of the children follow suit. Mm-hmm. And similarly, the brothers are giving this mincha to Joseph, are going to uh, bow to Joseph as well. 
Um, mm-hmm. So just to take stock, um, you've got the delivery of the mincha followed by bowing in two stories. You have the Vayivata Hulavato connection, and you've got the um, the Lifleta connection. Uh, and in general, there are these two stories of these brothers that are coming to meet each other, um, and both seem like these fearful, very difficult reunions, and then things kind of work out. So it does sound like the language of one story is being borrowed by the other. It, it, you've convinced me that the 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 language is, seems to be strong enough that if I'm thinking about the Joseph story, I am th- thinking about the Yaakov story in the back of my mind as I as I listen to these echoes. So, Rabbi Foreman, I'll, I'll say that um, I remember very early on when I began learning with you, you talked about textual analysis being like a form of archaeology, where you find a single dinosaur bone. Say you're, you know, out there, uh, out there in the desert on a hot day doing your excavating, and you say, "Huh, could is this a dinosaur bone? I'm not sure. Maybe it's just a piece of pottery. It's a bit hard to tell. Maybe it's a rock. Uh, if it really is a dinosaur bone, there's liable to be other pieces here as well. There should be a whole skeleton somewhere in the surroundings, and all I have to do is take care in unearthing it, and and then that'll that'll validate my my findings, you know, after the fact." That is, for me, the mincha was that dinosaur bone, was that initial dinosaur bone. Is it a dinosaur bone or is it a rock? And once I went searching around that, there was a whole scroll of words that I started to find between the two stories, all all, 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 all uniting around this theme of what happens when you have a vulnerable brother or brothers gearing up to have an intimidating encounter with another brother that they think might, might do them harm. Um, what does that chain of words look like? So yira, vayiru, vayar, both, in both cases, the vulnerable party is described as experiencing fear in anticipation of the encounter. Vayigash, the ultimate encounter, is described as, in, in the language of Vayigash or Vayigshu, it is an encounter, literally. As we, as we discussed, there's the Vayishtachavu Artsa, there's bowing down to the ground. When they finally do reunite, you find language of Vayipol falling upon Altsvarav, on one's neck. In, in other words, this kind of, um, this, this uh, you know, um, this embrace just overcome with emotion, falling upon one's neck and crying, Vayivku. So the, the threefold theme, A, to fall on the neck, B, to kiss, and C, to cry, right? So that occurs in both stories. It occurs in the Yaakov story with uh, when he meets his brother and occurs in the next generation when the brothers meet Joseph. So what I would say is one of the tricky things about this, right? You've uncovered what I might say is a grand pattern. In other words, the reason why it's grand is because you have a pattern spanning uh, you know, multiple chapters here in the Joseph story and a little bit less text in the Jacob story, but also a lot of text, and therefore it's a little bit of a grand pattern. I suspect that um, each of these connections that you'll find 
if you zero in on each of them, you'll find that there's aspects of it which you haven't fully explicated yet. And there's there's other aspects of the pattern in each of these little isolated places that they appear. Mm-hmm. And if you would go in and do that work, you might find yourself in a position where you could at least understand a little bit more carefully what the meaning of those isolated connections are. And by doing that, ultimately, you might be able to get to a theory about the grand meaning of how all those connections come together. That would kind of be my game plan here. I don't know if we have enough time to do all of that, but um, we can jump in and and try it a little bit. Um, There's a few things that I noticed with each of these. Why don't we begin with the first one that you found? So the first connection that you found was the Vayivatar Yaakov Levado connection, right? Mm-hmm. That Yaakov is left all alone, and there's this man who struggles with him until morning. And that, you found, was connected to Vayivatar Hu Levado Imo, that Binyamin was all that was left to his mother, and his father loved him. Okay, so what do you do with that connection? One way to think about it is you can try to understand who matches up with who. And then what you can try to do is like literally superimpose one story on the other. And as you do so, phantom elements of one story may emerge. In other words, if I have two things, uh, two things that go on top of each other, imagine these transparencies, and they're meant to layer on top of each other. The pictures are not exactly the same, but certain aspects mm-hmm. of them are then layering them on top of each other can reveal phantom elements of one story. Now, as you say, well, there's all this stuff here in this story that doesn't seem to fit that story. Is it really the case that it doesn't fit? Or are there phantom elements of the other story that actually do fit, at least implicitly, the thing that it's being overlaid with? Let me show you what I'm talking yeah. about here. Yeah. Right? I'm getting excited. So let's go to Vayivatar Yaakov Levado, right? Yaakov here matches up with who? So Yaakov is alone. He's the one who's alone. And then his parallel is Benjamin. Benjamin is the one who's being described as being left alone. So Okay, so Benjamin is our Jacob character in the second story. Now, let's. here's where my brain goes. My brain says, well, let's look at the first story and ask what happens. Vayivatar Yaakov Levado, what happens when Yaakov is all alone? So, a mysterious man comes and starts struggling with him until morning. So, what I would ask you, Beth, is does that remind you of anything in the second story when Joseph was gone and now uh, all that's left is Benjamin to his mother, right? So, it doesn't say the words in the Joseph story. There is no man who comes and struggles with them until morning. But I ask you, Beth, mm-hmm. is it possible that there is a phantom in the Joseph story? There's a phantom man that comes and struggles with Benjamin, so to speak, until the morning. And who would mm-hmm. that phantom man be? So if I'm thinking what you're thinking, if you're thinking what I'm thinking, um, I wonder I wonder if that person might be Joseph. I think it is Joseph. Tell me, okay. why do you think that Joseph might be the man who comes and struggles with Benjamin until the morning? Yeah, so we have to, we have to trace it step by step. Um, the first thing you have to realize is that Yaakov, in his story— is described as being alone, but he's not really alone. We find out in the very next verse that actually there's a man there with him, right? 
so too in the description of Binyamin. Binyamin is described as being alone, which is immediately prefaced by um, a mention of his brother who is dead, but his brother is not really dead. His brother is actually alive and is actually right there in the room with him, just no one realizes it at that moment. Right, so that's fascinating, right? Because you're picking up on a really interesting point that I hadn't even considered, but I think that you're exactly right. In other words, one of the strange aspects about the Jacob story is that there's a grammatical problem in that story. You can't say, Vayivater Yaakov Vadova Yevek Ishima. Those words don't make sense. If Yaakov was really all alone, who is this man who's struggling with him? Obviously, he wasn't alone. Yaakov's perception is that he's all alone, but he, in fact, isn't alone because there's this man that's actually there that's struggling with him. Similarly, there is an issue of perception in this story, too, because the brother's perception is that Benjamin is all alone and that he's all he's all that's left to his mother because Achiv mate, his brother, has died. But the very person that Judah is talking to when he says Achiv mate is, in fact, the brother that Judah has supposed is dead. It's Joseph, and Joseph hasn't died. So if Joseph is right the man— He's right there beside him, physically. Right, he's right there beside him. So in both cases, neither the Benjamin nor the Jacob character is really all— all alone, there in fact is an unperceived man by either of them that makes them not alone. Now, Beth, if we just unfurl the implications anymore, if in the second story the man was Joseph, his brother, right, who does that make you start thinking the man might be in the Jacob story? It makes me wonder if that man might be Asaph. Exactly. And hence, we have Chazal. The sages are coming and tell us that the person that Yaakov struggled with was Sar Shel Esav, was in fact some sort of angel that represented Esav. Where would they get such a ludicrous notion? But it could be that the sages were aware of this intertextual parallel and mm-hmm. did the same algebra that you and I just did, right? And said, oh, wow, this is parallel to the Benjamin story. Benjamin wasn't all alone. He had a man next to him. That man was his brother, uh, right? It sure sounds like Jacob wasn't all alone either. He had a man next to him, and that man was some sort of heavenly representative of his brother, right? Right. It's interesting because before the revelation, as you pointed out, there's a marked ambivalence about what it would be like to meet them. And there's reason for that ambivalence. I mean, there was deception going back in both stories. There's anger. There's bad feelings, right? And so what's really going to happen? So I go back to the question I asked you before. Vayivater Yaakov Levado, we were talking about this phantom aspect of the story, that Yaakov is all alone when Vayavek Ishimo Adalotashachar, when a man struggled with him until the morning. I go back to my original question. If in the Yaakov case there was a man who struggled, a, a divine man who struggled with Yaakov until the morning hours, in the Yosef story, is there a divine man who struggles with Benjamin until the morning. And who would that Mm -hmm. be? Now, you said that's Joseph. But I can challenge you and say, but Joseph's a nice guy. He's going to reveal himself. Does Joseph ever struggle with Benjamin until the morning? He certainly struggles with him. I mean, right before he reveals himself, that's the whole drama. Joseph presents as a terrifying figure who has deceived Binyamin. He sets him up. He puts the goblet into his cup. He frames him, and then he says, I'm going to keep you as a slave forever. Exactly. No greater struggle than that, right? So here is this divine messenger, but it there's this struggle between them, 
right? Before there's this revelation that things are going to be okay, right? Notice, and he struggled with him until dawn. Take a look at chapter 44, verse 3. When exactly did Joseph start pursuing Benjamin to try to catch up to him? Ah, wonderful. So Haboker Or, it was morning time. And that's it was when, dawn. That's dawn had the, just broken. Started. So in one yeah. story, it the struggle goes until dawn. Yeah. And another story, the struggle starts at dawn, right? Yeah. When Joseph goes and, and runs after him. So what you really seem to be seeing is two stories in which there is a Jacob character in one story. In the next generation, there's a Benjamin character who seems to be the next generation of Jacob. And they both have a similar struggle. And, and it's sort of interesting because if you think about Joseph's feelings towards Benjamin, despite the fact that Joseph is capturing Benjamin, right? Deep down, what's Joseph's real feelings about Benjamin? He loves him. I mean, we we, we know something about this story that Binyamin doesn't know at all, which is that exactly. what seems like aggression is actually an act of love and protection. And it makes you wonder makes you whether wonder the same what's going thing on with, the angel. with Asaph. Yeah. Right? In other words, when Asaph comes to greet him with 400 men, imagine how intimidated you would be if you were the brothers uh, and, and you realized that here's this brother that you deceived and now he's in charge of the world and he's got this whole coterie in Egypt with his 400 men. You're terrified of those 400 men, just like Jacob is terrified about Asaph's 400 men. But just as in the second story, we know something that the, that the brothers don't know, which is that, in fact, deep down, Joseph really loves Benjamin and wants nothing more than to love him and hug him and kiss him. Isn't it fascinating? Is it really the case that Jacob managed to appease him? I mean, the appeasement in the Joseph story didn't work any well. Was it the mincha that changed Joseph's mind? I didn't care about them. It wasn't the mincha. And it wasn't the mincha in the Jacob story either. In both cases, you think it's the mincha. But it could be that what's really going on is that the second story is shedding light on the first, telling us how to read Esav, which is that at some deep level, Esav was a brother, Right And yes, you can deceive and yes, you can hurt, but there is this sort of undying sense that if I could only hug you and kiss you, then somehow reconciliation could be possible. And therefore, it's kind of ambiguous what those 400 men are. It's possible that those 400 men are aggressive, but it's also possible that those 400 men are just his coterie. Like, he's a rich guy. He's the new prince of Sayer. Asaph has made something out of himself. He's got 400 men now. Sure, in both cases, there's some hard feelings. But underneath those hard feelings, there's somebody who is willing to hug you and willing to kiss you because there's kind of an undying brotherly love. And maybe there's a note of hope in both of these stories, which is that, you know, you can go through really tough things in your family and you can think that there's a painful, terrible feud, right? Based upon things that brothers should not do to brothers, right? There was people through Joseph in a pit and, and and deceived Asaph. And and there's all these feelings like, I'd like to kill him. And Asaph is like, yeah, I'm going to kill him. And those feelings are real. But sometimes human beings are creatures that have contradictory feelings or layers of feelings. And the aggression is a superficial layer, right? And sometimes underneath that, if you can get below that, there's still some sort of love and some sort of connection. And what the hopeful parts of these stories is that 
you know, reconciliation is possible. You can take that chance. And it could be that your fearfulness comes because you don't recognize who your brother has become during this time, but it's not necessarily the case that they have as aggressive a stance as you might suspect that they have. And therefore, the possibility of connection you know, with this new version of your brother could be real. So to me, that's what I mean by as you begin to look at these micro-connections, we've only looked at one of the Vayivater Hulavado, but you see how rich it is once you begin to really look at it and mine it for its implications. So, mm-hmm. Beth, I know we're trying to record a podcast here, so maybe we'll leave it at this for now and challenge your readers and say, you know, each one of these connections, there's a whole rich field of opportunity for you. As you look at the idea of the plata, what jumps out at you? How do you see that as enriching your view of one or both stories? Can you see the phantom side of of each story emerge as you look at the plata? As you look at the final reconciliation where they fall on each other's necks and they cry and they kiss, right? And you begin to compare this, what happens there. Again, do we begin to see a larger picture emerging? And I think, I think we do. That's the really fascinating possible work that intertextual analysis allows for us. And I'd be really thrilled to hear uh, if your uh, audience comes up with any any fascinating observations. You can, as always, leave us a uh, a voice note. There's information about that in the description of the podcast. And uh, let's, let's keep it going. This is work that we can all share. That's this week's episode. To listen to last year's episodes, as well as our world-famous Parsha and Holiday videos, head on over to olivebeta.org and sign up for a membership. This episode is recorded by Beth Lesh together with Rabbi David Foreman. This episode is produced by Evan Wiener. Audio editing is done by Shifford Jacobs. Our production manager is Adina Blaustein. Our senior editor is Ari Levison. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.